It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Today's episode is presented by Lloyd's Banking Group. Everyone deserves a safe place to call home. That's why Lloyd's Banking Group has championed the social housing sector for decades, supporting more than 340 housing associations across the UK. EU Confidential will get started right after this message. Today's episode is presented by Shell. On July 9th in Brussels, Shell's CEO Ben van Buurden announced the company's support for net zero emissions in the EU by 2050. Shell hopes this can be endorsed by the EU governments as soon as possible, because it is a plan that shows real leadership on global climate action. Learn more at www.shell.com. Well, he's too fast. And honestly, with Trudeau, he's a nice guy. I, I find him to be a very nice guy. But, you know, the truth is that uh, I called him out on the fact that he's not paying 2%. And I guess he's not very happy about it. Welcome to a special edition of Politico's EU Confidential podcast. We are coming to you from the NATO summit just outside Watford at a country house hotel. But actually, we're just outside the country house hotel. Uh, We're in a big tent, which may or may not be appropriate for covering a NATO summit, because it certainly seems like they need a big tent to take into account all the different views and personalities that have been on display over the past couple of days. I'm Andrew Gray, Politico's EU editor, I should have said. And uh, with me is our regular co-host, Reem Montaz, our Paris correspondent. Hi, Reem. Hello. Also joining us today, our chief Brussels correspondent, David Herzenhorn. Hey there. And a new voice on the podcast, our UK correspondent, Emilio Casalicchio. How are you? Hello. Good, thank you. Okay, so we'll dive right into it. We're just trying to really get our heads around uh, everything that's happened in the past 24, 48 hours. Let's rewind a bit because probably the first extraordinary thing, Reem, was um, when Emmanuel uh, Macron and Donald Trump got together yesterday. Uh, What did you make of that? It it was quite the show, I have to say, and it was really brutal uh, in some parts for uh, Emmanuel Macron. He he took it like a champ. He he kind of dealt with it, but you could see his body language was betrayed all of his, you know, discomfort and how he just felt really aggressive. You know, he had his legs spread out, his arm was resting on one of his knees. That's not how he usually sits. At one point, uh, Macron gave one of his usual long winding answers. And at the end, Trump, with the best zinger, said, this is why he's a great politician. This is the greatest non-answer I've ever heard. And you could see Macron's face just drop. But at the same time, I was struck by the fact that Macron went to pains to tell Trump that he agrees on you know, his gripe in terms of uh, NATO spending. And Trump, on his side, seemed to be a bit more in agreement with Macron on, on his position in terms of Russia not being the enemy and terrorism being the enemy. Right. And David, what did you make of the uh, something of a transformation in Donald Trump, who suddenly 
called Macron out for his brain-dead comments about NATO and suddenly from somebody who was NATO's biggest critic turned into its biggest defender. Well, I was going to say, this is to me was the more incredible thing. Before Trump and Macron even got together in that room, sitting in their side chairs, jousting, you had Trump with Jens Stoltenberg, the NATO Secretary General, suddenly the guy who famously on the campaign trail had called NATO obsolete, who's been pounding and beating on uh, NATO allies for years, really, over their meager military spending, even as he doesn't seem to quite grasp, or at least pretends not to grasp, how NATO financing actually works, turn around and present himself as NATO's biggest supporter. Uh, Really thrilled, he seemed genuinely thrilled with the numbers that Stoltenberg had reported, that spending by allies is up a cumulative $130 billion. Uh, Stoltenberg gave Trump credit for that. So, of course, Trump's pleased, saying that that number will grow to $400 billion by 2024. So really a remarkable turnabout. And Trump picking up on a line, it was quite funny, where Stoltenberg says that NATO is changing for a changing world. And that seemed a very simple, clear enough message that Trump really seized on it and says, I I love what you just said. That's very profound. And he continued to repeat that over the course of the next 36 hours, telling everybody how well NATO was doing, how proud he is of NATO, quite a long way from where he had started out. I think the moment that really struck me in that conversation and his comments about Macron is when Trump, the guy who, you know, is always causing outrage, was calling out Macron, who's always so well-spoken, and saying that he was being disrespectful, and it was really nasty to speak that way. You couldn't talk that way about 28 allies. And it just seemed to be... I I had to do a double-take. Like, is this the same guy? Trump knows what an ally is? But of course, Trump can't take the high road alone, right? So he quickly pivoted into bashing France as practically a failed state, pointing out the Yellow Vest protest and saying its economy is really bad, unemployment is high. I mean, really making up stuff negative to say. And, you know, lest you think that that kind of broke the situation between Macron and and Trump, not at all. At the end, even after that press conference that was, you know, kind of like a boxing match, really, they went to a reception at Buckingham Palace. And as they were leaving, Trump suggested, offered a ride to Macron in his limousine, The Beast. And they seemed to be getting on pretty well. Right. I think this is the thing we've had the kind of, uh, we used to characterize this relationship as a bromance. We had the early kind of honeymoon period and then things seemed to go awry and I think we probably just have to get used to the fact that this is more like a kind of torrid affair which has its kind of ups and downs but and you never quite know which what it's going to be on any given day or any given hour but let's bring Emilio let's talk a bit about um, the UK because the UK and I think in particular the Conservatives were kind of on tenterhooks for this visit because Donald Trump in the past has not shied away from diving into UK domestic politics. What was the the mood leading up to this visit? What were the Conservatives and Labour as well hoping would come out of this visit? Well, the Conservatives, I think they were hoping that basically it was going to pass off without much comment at all. Uh, Boris Johnson is in the kind of last stretch of the general election campaign where it looks as though he's not, he's kind of on track at the moment, at least for a majority. He's got a nine point lead in the polls. So he's hoping that that Donald Trump doesn't come to the UK and kind of smash his election campaign uh, into oblivion. This general election campaign, generally, it's not been that interesting. It's been fairly, like, middle of the road, nothing, you know, a few little points that everyone thought it was going to start getting exciting, and it never really did. So everyone in the press is thinking, oh, Trump's coming, things are going to start exploding in the campaign, it's going to start getting exciting. 
he has his first press conference. He gets asked about the election and he says, oh, you know, I don't want to complicate it. I don't want to get involved. He did in pretty much the same breath say, oh, but, you know, Boris Johnson, he's a great guy. He's very credible. I think he'll do a good job, etc. But it wasn't the kind of huge ring endorsement that we've heard before. It was fairly, fairly scaled back. But they did sneak in a meeting, right, Boris Johnson and... And Donald Trump? They did, they did. So uh, so the whole time Downing Street was saying, oh yeah, we're not sure, we're not sure if there's going to be, be a meeting, we don't know what's going to happen, there's definitely not going to be a press conference. Then late last night on the government website just appeared uh, a new page which said, oh, Boris Johnson and Donald Trump meeting Downing Street after the reception that you guys talked about where they all turned up in the beast. I think all the other leaders had left and Boris Johnson and Donald Trump s- sat down in the, the white room, a big grand room in Downing Street and just had a quick 10 minutes together. You know, it was probably always going to happen, but it, wasn't announced in advance, no fan for afterwards, you know, they were trying to keep it as on the lowdown as much as possible. And that's one of the incredible things really, it's amazing how much of this has become almost normal or accepted, but the idea that a US president would come to the UK for a NATO summit and not have a high profile one-on-one meeting with the UK Prime Minister that would be photographed, you know, there would be television coverage, there would be a joint press conference, none of that even though Boris Johnson and Donald Trump have a rapport, but it's likely we're keeping it under wraps and mentioning that uh, reception at Buckingham Palace brings us to the last act of this drama and uh, led to kind of where we are today. We were expecting about now to be covering a Donald Trump press conference, but he cancelled it. And he seems to have cancelled it, at least in part, because of some remarks that were made during that reception. David, do you want to fill us in on this part and what do you make of it? Well, we've now had a couple of hot mic moments uh, that seem to have heated up this summit that was otherwise a 70th anniversary celebration. The first one at Buckingham Palace, one camera uh, keeping an eye on this royal event for all the international press that's here and happens to pick up the Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau describing for Emmanuel Macron and Boris Johnson and Mark Rutte, the Dutch Prime Minister, why he was late. And Princess Anne. And Princess Anne. Why he was late. They're asking him, is that why you were late? And he said, yeah, he just took a 40-minute press conference off the top, sort of seeming to have this smile about Trump's total disregard for scheduling and scripting, because all day yesterday he had gone on from one meeting to another, taking questions, uh, long answers, back and forth, much more than anybody had expected. But now it turns out, and Trudeau's explained more in his press conference today, he was describing... Uh, the jaws dropping on Trump's White House team. And that was about the announcement by the president, apparently unexpected by his own staff, according to Trudeau, that the G20 summit, which the U.S. will host next year, will be held at Camp David, the presidential retreat in Maryland. Now, that's multiple reasons for laughter there, not just because of the surprise, but Trump had wanted to put that event at his own Doral National Golf Resort in Florida. Huge criticism of self-dealing. He finally relented. He had said it was the perfect site. So he backed off on that and now has turned around and decided this will be at the presidential retreat. Not clear that that works as a good site for the G7 at all, given the number of press and the number of folks that have to come in. And he did face other criticism, if you remember, hoping to hold a a peace conference there with the Taliban, inviting uh, Taliban leaders from Afghanistan. That left even his national security advisor, John Bolton, at the time shaking his head, you know, what is this president thinking? So we'll see if he does get his slumber party at Camp David, at least with the uh, G7 leaders. Right, I think it's a, a G7 rather than a G20, although once again with Donald Trump, you can't rule out that he would just invite everybody else along to make it more of a party. So it's been incredible. And then, of course, the final part of this 
piece of the drama was then that uh, Trump was not amused by this video of Trudeau at uh, Buckingham Palace. Always good to see these receptions, just to know which parts of the royal family are allowed out in public at any given time. And we discovered uh, Trump then decided to call uh, Trudeau two-faced. And that ended up overshadowing the kind of end of this summit and the hopes that Jens Stoltenberg in particular had, I think, to try and put on a united front. But Reem, let's round off by coming back to you. Emmanuel Macron is the one who really kind of started all the noise around this summit with his brain-dead comments about NATO. What do you think he was looking to get out of this and how satisfied will he be? He claims that he was looking to, uh, you know, break some China, wake people up. This alliance has been, you know, he said it was brain dead. Perhaps it was more in a coma. Uh, however you want to put it, uh, his desire, his stated desire was to shake things up and get a, what he calls, and I quote him, a strategic reflection going in terms of what the alliance is good for, who its enemies are. Uh, and then we discovered the declaration today, the leader's declaration at the end of this uh, leaders meeting and you see that all the way down after you know talking about cost sharing and how Russia is really a threat but also terrorism but also Russia again and the INF treaty then all the way down point number seven they say that they've agreed that the uh, secretary general of NATO is going to launch what they call a forward-looking reflection. So clearly the Allies made a very deliberate choice not to use strategic reflection, as Macron had called it. To him, it's really not that important what words are, are used. What's important is the mandate, except we have no indication on what the mandate is going to be, how thorough it's going to be, how wide-ranging it's going to be, and actually if it's going to lead to anything. We know that these panels of experts can be called in, and in the end, you can just put their conclusions or their recommendations in a drawer and say, look, we did some reflection, we think everything's fine, or we're going to do these little changes. So is he satisfied? He sure tried to make it seem like he's satisfied but if you look at that declaration he got a few nods yes terrorism got uh, mentioned russia is there although he and and as identified as a threat although he had said that russia isn't an enemy but then said there are issues of conflictuality with russia so he had kind of nuanced his position and of course china is identified as a you know a potential uh, problem and macron has been very adamant that you know china is not at all problematic well, I think uh, we were going to talk about the EU as well, but I think we've probably done enough on NATO. So if you're a big EU politics fan, don't worry, we will get to Ursula von der Leyen and her uh, first days in her new job. Uh, David will be travelling with her in the days ahead, so we can catch up on that next week. Uh, but for now, David Emilio uh, Reem, thanks very much. We'll hear more from Reem in just a moment as she talks to our featured guest this week, Gérard Arrault, a French diplomatic superstar who retired earlier this year, having served as ambassador to the United States under Trump and Obama, to the United Nations and to Israel. Arrault is very outspoken for a diplomat. He made waves when he tweeted on the night of Trump's election that a world is collapsing before our eyes. And in this conversation with Reem, he certainly doesn't mince words. We'll hear the highlights of their conversation right after a message from this week's sponsor. A message from Shell. Shell CEO Ben Van Buren announced on July 9th in Brussels the company's support for climate neutrality in the EU by 2050. Delivering on it will require unprecedented collaboration and action between all parts of society. The European Council should commit to an energy transition that achieves net zero emissions in the EU by 2050 as soon as possible. 
An enabling framework to accelerate investment in cleaner energy and carbon sinks is critical to enable companies like Shell to adapt and respond quickly. Businesses from all sectors will need to provide low-carbon solutions which are affordable, convenient and compelling for their customers. We will continue to play our part. In December 2017, Shell announced its net carbon footprint ambition. Our plan is to reduce the net carbon footprint of the energy products we sell in step with society's progress towards meeting the Paris Agreement. That means fewer greenhouse gases emitted on average with each unit of energy we sell by around 20% by 2035 and by around half by 2050. Read more about Shell's net carbon footprint ambition at www.shell.com. Now, let's hear Reem's interview with Gérard Arrault. She starts by asking him about something he wrote in his recently published memoir, Diplomatic Passport. You said that France has always been attached to reconciling national independence and attachment to the Atlantic Alliance, and it will have an easier time than others to avoid the current drift within NATO ends up in divorce. And France will also have an easier time persuading its partners to take responsibility for their security. But, you add, France must do this with tact and realism. And so it had me thinking, Ambassador, did Emmanuel Macron use the required tact and regard for Eastern European partners when he said that NATO was experiencing brain death? What struck me when when I left the French Foreign Service, I met the president himself, I, I met his advisors, and I felt the frustration I should say. And after two years, his impression is that Germany is satisfied with the status quo and is not going to to move forward in any significant way. Uh, The second point, another frustration was that basically Macron is convinced that what is happening is critical around Europe, that the US doesn't want to be anymore the policeman of the world. And it has started with, with Obama. It's, it's done in a very brutal way uh, by Trump, but that whoever is elected in 2020 is drifting away, a partial drifting away of the U.S. is going to, to go on, and which means that the Europeans have to act by themselves. And the frustration is that nearly all European countries refuse to see this reality. So I think it's an expression of a deep frustration and the impression that nobody is moving and that he has tried in a sense to break some china to wake up uh, i think uh, the europeans having said that you know really defending my president i should say now that i'm not anymore a civil servant i'm not sure that was the way to do it what would have been a better way to do it uh it's very difficult uh, maybe impossible uh really to see another way of doing it because people say oh he should have he should have really worked with the germans but he has been trying to do it for the last two years you know he's the only french president who in the first year of his election has visited all the european capitals uh he has for instance nobody knows it but he has a personal relationship with orban you know which is his political opposite no no he has trying to to have a dialogue with the europeans but the fact is that today the Europeans are, uh, are ostriches. But on, on, 
So on his relationship with Orban, I'm glad you brought it up. You know, there was a, a part in the interview that he gave to The Economist that in speaking to sources in Eastern Europe comes up quite often when he says that he shares Viktor Orban's you know, view of the relationship with Russia, and he hopes that he will help him bring Poland along to their side. Is the right position for France to be in alignment with Orban's position toward Russia? You know, in France, people are, are joking about the fact that in his speeches, Macron is very often saying en même temps, at the same time. He's advancing a far a right-wing position, and immediately after that he said, but at the same time, the left-wing position as something which could be useful. Uh, so Macron can't be identified to left or to right. He's extremely ideologically fluid. Does that make him less trustworthy, maybe? I don't know if it's trustworthy. You know, it's is ideological, which means that he's deeply convinced of the complexity of the of the issues, and he sees himself, in a sense, as a bridge, taking into account what is happening among the populists and trying also to respond to what the populists are saying. The second part of the question, of course, is Russia, mm -hmm. and. Uh, personally, uh, really had advised him for some time to talk to Russia because uh, he is a realist. You have to be a realist. Mm. Uh, whatever the Russians are doing, whatever, it's bad. We, okay, it's agreed. We agree it's bad. But for instance, in Ukraine, if you don't talk with Russia, if you don't negotiate with Russia, it means that you want to fight to the last Ukrainian. But again, going back to your first, first question, I think he could have done it in a different way. Uh, he could have done it in a less vocal and uh, uh, aggressive way, uh, taking into account what the Baltic states and Poland are fearing due to their tragic history. So, so let's talk a bit more about Russia. Uh, do you think that Russia is no longer a security threat to Europe today? Russia is a problem. Uh, the behavior of Russia is unacceptable. Uh, it's a geopolitical problem, but it's not a, a global threat against against Europe. The, the Russian tanks are not going uh, uh, to enter Estonia, but uh, Russia is going to try to destabilize uh, maybe Latvia or, or we see what they are doing in, in Ukraine. Uh, so, which makes a difference. Mm -hmm. I think the, the major test would be the meeting on Ukraine on December the 9th in Paris. Mm -hmm. The Normandy because format. Ukraine, exactly. Mm -hmm. Germany, France, Ukraine, Russia. Because it's really, uh, since the after the election of Zelensky in Kiev, I think it's really the moment for Russia to show whether it really wants a compromise. The $1 million question is, If Russia wants to basically to destabilize Europe and uh, really because it doesn't accept the 1991 uh, geopolitical reality, which means the collapse of the Soviet Union, of course, no compromise is possible. If Russia wants to be sure that Ukraine doesn't become uh, in a sort of geopolitical threat on its flank, so here maybe we can reach a compromise. You know But the jury is out. You know, I'm also struck by how similar the debate about European power and defense is today to when you served at the French mission to NATO. And 
at the end of the day, perhaps the push for the French push for creating a European defense was also to create an alternative to NATO. Do you think that is still the case today? I think I write in my book that I thought that going back to the military structure of NATO, I thought the only positive aspect of this move was to reassure our Polish and the Baltic states and the other European countries that actually we didn't want to undermine NATO. Uh, unfortunately, I think that the interview of, of Macron with The Economist actually didn't help into this, this direction. It just seems like France has a real trust deficit when it comes to Eastern Europe and the Baltic states. I think you're right. I think that's an element that the, the French have really never uh, really taken into account, into the definition in the, of their foreign policy or into their own rhetoric. There is so too much, I think, on the French side, and you'd be surprised by what I'm going to say. Uh, there is a, a sort of Russian romanticism. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, you know, uh, Russia was our ally uh, against Germany during the two world wars. And there is also a, a cultural, really, attraction between the two countries. Uh, and the French are fascinated by the Russian culture, I am. And when you go to Russia, you discover also how much Russian intellectuals are interested, fascinated by the French culture. And I think it's sheer romanticism and, and, and it's a mistake. We should also really think of our Eastern European uh, friends and partners. And yet Macron is stuck with his European allies, because without Europe, I mean, France can't really impose itself in the new power dynamics in the world. So, you know, what what would you advise, actually, President Macron to do now? The Franco-German relationship has never been an easy relationship. Uh, uh, In a sense, for the, I can tell you, as as a retired diplomat, for French diplomats, it's easier to work with the British than to work with the Germans because of the vision of the world, you know, really. uh, How so? because, you know, in a sense, the British are, are like us. <laughs> we are we are as been uh, world powers. We have naturally the same realistic analysis and uh, of, of foreign policy, and we consider that we need to have an active foreign policy. While for the Germans, it's very different. The Federal Republic of Germany uh, uh, really basically has been built on the refusal of power politics. And, Is that uh, changing that- a bit now? No, I, I, and that's the question mark. You know, really, Germany is an aging country. It's also a very important factor. Uh, from time to time, I have the impression that Germany wants basically to be a big Switzerland. You so neutral their... and and not yes, involved. Exactly, mm. not involved. And uh, you know, you look at their military budget. You know, it's really it's 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 amazing. You know, considering that they have a, a budgetary surplus, mm. uh, so it's not a financial constraint. It's it's a political. That choice. they don't invest enough in 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 their defense. Of course, no. Mm-hmm. You know, really. So. You have all these problems, but at the end of the day, the French and the Germans, I think, more out of reason than for uh, other, uh, for sort of sentimental commitment, they know that they have to work together. In a sense, uh, the real question goes well beyond Macron and France and, and Germany. The question is, the, is really the future of the European Union, considering the, the deep crisis in which Spain and Italy are going, the political crisis, considering that most of the countries consider that they 
really you shouldn't move or change anything because the public opinion is hostile to more integration the british leaving the illiberal uh, uh, countries in the in the east i think that's also i guess a, a big question mark about the future of the european union and i guess it's also what is in the background of of the macron outburst that was Gérard Arrault talking to our own Remontaz. And that's it for this week's EU Confidential. We'll be back next week with not one but two episodes. A bonus edition looking at the British general election from both UK and EU points of view, which will land on Monday evening. And our regular edition will come next Thursday from the European Council Summit in Brussels, the first for the EU's new leadership. We're always happy to hear from you. Just email podcast at politico.eu. And please consider rating, reviewing and spreading the word about the podcast. I'm Andrew Gray in Brussels. Thanks as always to producer Christina Gonzalez. And thanks to you for listening. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.